0: Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 76, The Sounds in Silence, The Battle of Roanoke, February 7th to 8th, 1862. In today's episode, we will return to the Atlantic waters off the coast of southern Virginia and northern North Carolina, following up from the events of Episode 46. To briefly recap, One of the major strategic targets for the Union in the early war period focused on the Atlantic coastal trade of the Confederacy. For generations, American ships sailed along the eastern seaboard, taking advantage of the barrier islands that created an entire inland sea. This protected them from the worst Atlantic storms. However, when the Civil War began, The islands also protected Confederate shipping from the Union Navy. It was difficult for the Navy to get ships into these waters at all. There were relatively few access points, and the Confederacy made sure to quickly occupy those, and build forts where necessary. It seemed like this inland sea, including the waters of Pamlico Sound and Albemarle Sound, and also the smaller, yet strategically important Currituck Sound, would remain safe for the Confederacy indefinitely. That boded very ill for the Union, because it allowed the safe shipment of any quantity of goods, including foodstuffs and military equipment, from the ports of North Carolina up to Virginia. To clarify a possible question, these goods could alternatively move along the railroads. And yet rail capacity was a legitimate and ongoing concern for the Confederacy, a concern that would only grow during the war years as the entire rail system slowly wore down. After the stunning failure of the Union land war advance into Virginia at Bull Run, the Navy realized it would require a new strategy. They needed to apply pressure to the Confederate coast, and the faster, the better. This was broadly in keeping with General Scott's Anaconda Plan. The Navy would have three goals. First, strengthening the blockade. Second, restricting the aforementioned coastal trade and also allowing for marine raiding along the coast. To accomplish these near the sounds, again, southern Virginia and northern North Carolina, the Navy would first need to open a pathway into Pamlico Sound. This was the southernmost of the sounds, fed by the Noyce and Pamlico Rivers, which reached quite some distance inland. The strategically important city of New Bern also lay nearby on the Noyce. The city represented a tempting target for future invasion. Now, in theory, the Navy could also try cutting a new pathway through the sandy barrier island soil. But for some reason, they went with the option that made the use of all their big naval guns instead of starting a major geoengineering project. As we've covered in the previous episode, in short order, the Navy captured Hatteras Island after easily destroying the fortress there. That opened one desired avenue into Pamlico Sound. That said, this didn't immediately put an end to the coastal trade. Much of the Inland Sea had very shallow water, so it was difficult for the Navy to entirely block it. Many of the coastal vessels drew hardly any draft. They could practically sail on the edge of the beach. The Navy's ships, however, were up in deep draft and built to survive ocean waves, so that did not really mix well with a uh, very shallow Inland Sea. For all of these reasons, the Navy quickly grew frustrated and wanted to close the matter once and for all. But this promised to be a much tougher nut to crack open than the miserable defenses at Hatteras Island. Between Pamlico and Albemarle Sounds, and inside the cordon of the barrier islands, lies another small island with a very large history, Roanoke. Native Americans lived on the island for many generations before the coming of any Europeans, and in the early colonial period. It also became the site of one of the earliest British colonies as well. Virginia Dare, the first child born in the American colonies to English parents, entered the world here three centuries before the Civil War. And then the colony vanished, leaving few clues as to what happened to its people. Only a mystery that historians today still puzzle over. And here, the Confederacy built up fortifications. These would help keep their supply lines open. Prevent the Union from mounting any attack into Albemarle Sound, and especially keep the pressure away from the vital shipyard at Norfolk. The Union Navy therefore needed to capture Roanoke Island, but to do so, they would need to draw upon the resources of the army. And here we turn to an interesting quirk of wartime strategy. Now, before we continue on, I want to speak personally and plainly. I I, I do not like General George Britton McClellan at all. And he was objectively a terrible leader. He combined arrogant self-worship, a sneering disdain for anyone who disagreed with him, with an inability to see the good in others, and a complete failure to understand the needs of the war effort beyond his own command. I say this knowing that we have discussed him in the past, and that we will discuss some of his real gifts for inspiring people in the future. But also because today, we should mention one of his best traits. McClellan had a real talent for grand strategy, that is, the design of entire campaigns and the disposition of entire armies, when it didn't affect him personally. He could never separate his ego or his fears from his desire to lead a mighty attack against Richmond and win the war. Yet, when matters arose that did not directly impact his army of the Potomac, he could deliver a completely clear-eyed assessment. So when his old friend, General Ambrose Burnside, wanted to get support For the proposed rowan-up campaign, McClellan listened attentively, thought the matter over, and decided it must be done, and done well. And McClellan was entirely correct. Initially, President Lincoln opposed this, because he wanted the army to concentrate all its power upon the land fronts. And McClellan had, at this point, spent, well, months doing very little and proclaiming he could not possibly do anything. But the nation had become restless with lack of progress, and Lincoln had begun to get very irritated with McClellan's insolence. If we're being honest, in fact, McClellan was starting to toe up close to the line of insubordination. Yet McClellan could clearly see the opportunities in a flanking force on the other side of his intended target. He worked hard to convince the Lincoln administration of the wisdom of the plan. And he was right on the facts. In this case, he was also aided by another factor. Everybody liked Ambrose Burnside, and Burnside desperately wanted to lead the army portion of the expedition. Burnside was a genuinely good man, and he was also a capable officer, as long as he executed someone else's plan. That's not an insult, either. Some officers are good at devising their own schemes, and others just don't. In this case, however, the Navy largely designed the campaign, which left Burnside to his strengths, and that lay in getting everybody on board figuratively, and in this case, literally. Burnside eagerly promoted the concept of the amphibious campaign, but he also took care to avoid stepping on the toes of anyone who might put a stop to it. For example, having secured the backing of General McClellan, Burnside made sure to avoid taking any soldiers from McClellan's army in the process. Instead, Burnside recruited an entirely new force from northeastern cities dedicated to this specific Marine campaign. One interesting quirk is that Burnside kept the ultimate target in near-complete secrecy. Even his own men did not know exactly where they were going. Only his staff knew, and even the captains of the transports only knew that they were ordered first to assemble near Fort Monroe. This occurred in the second week of January 1862. Once assembled, the Navy escorted the transports, as well as a number of gunboats under army authority, down to Hatteras Inlet. The plan was, of course, to attack immediately. But bad weather, and the tricky and time-consuming challenge of getting some of the deep-draft vessels over the shallow, underwater sandbar, delayed the expedition for several weeks. In the meantime, the rebels had an immense opportunity to reinforce Roanoke Island. As was usually the case in the Civil War, attempts at operational secrecy did not entirely work. The Confederacy spotted the sizable expedition and could perhaps guess that Burnside would attack somewhere on the eastern seaboard, although even that was by no means certain. Simply put, the Union had its pick of targets, and the Confederacy could not possibly guard them all. Indeed, even at the time of the expedition, the Navy also worked feverishly to put multiple task forces into the waters, intending to capture multiple key points, as well as the closing or taking of several Confederate ports. Yet it made no difference because Richmond dispatched no reinforcements to any threatened position at all. Although undoubtedly stretched thin, this implies a fantastic level of apathy towards a strategic point of considerable value. And, as if they were trying to make the job of the Union as easy as possible, the Confederate defense of Roanoke Island was hampered by a hilariously ill-planned administration. The island is hardly very large, only about 16 square miles or the size of a small town. Much of the land was sufficiently marshy as to discourage building. And yet through a miracle of mindless military planning, it had two garrisons representing two separate departments. The larger of the two camps was the northern garrison, led by our old friend, former Virginia governor-turned-General Henry A. Weiss. Fresh from his failed campaign in western Virginia, Weiss now settled into the south of his home state yet he could not pry a single additional soldier from Jefferson Davis in this hour. A second camp occupied the southern end of the island, under the command of Brigadier Lawrence Branch. General Branch, in fact, reported up to the Department of North Carolina, whereas Weiss reported to the military administration in Virginia. Despite this, and the fact that any attack would almost certainly come from the south, given that Hatterson went southward, it was Weiss and his command which would have most of the manpower and do most of the work to defend Roanoke Island. Among other things, Weiss sunk obstructions into the channel west of Roanoke, the primary channel bounded by the mainland. He hoped to block any naval attack by large Union ships in this sector. However, the obstructions could only partially block the channel, and, in any case, would not prevent a landing on either the northern or southern beaches if it came to that. At best, it could prevent the Navy from immediately cutting Roanoke off. Now, Weiss would also be able to draw upon the services of one of the Confederate Mosquito Fleets although he doubted they could possibly do much good. Mosquito fleets are, as the name suggests, haphazard collections of smaller vessels, given what armaments they could handle. While not realistically able to fight against real warships, in the right circumstances they might well be capable of inflicting some real damage. Small vessels might prove more maneuverable, or take advantage of shallows compared to larger naval warships. Unfortunately for the Confederates, Weiss's assessment would prove largely accurate, not only at Roanoke, but generally during the war. The Confederacy employed several such fleets, and all failed, although they cost the Union a few ships in the process. These Mosquito fleets had no real armor, and the just couldn't stand up to the punishment of modern naval guns, and the crews generally saw no particular glory in dying for the cause. Their biggest deficit lay in the guns, however. Even small Navy ships would often carry at least two guns and frequently four or more and considered a 30 pound cannon the absolute minimum and had much more experienced crews. The mosquito ships mostly had no more than one or two 30 pound cannon at best. The net result was that a Navy ship could fire on an enemy several times for every cannon shot a Confederate ship returned. And those Union ships had better, more powerful cannon in the bargain. Even when or if the ostensible numbers on paper looked even, the Union Navy task forces always held the advantage in real firepower. Regardless, even with obstructions, two small forts, two garrisons, several batteries, and a mosquito fleet, the defense of Roanoke Island looked very difficult. The marshy landscape would help, but the Confederates had a similar problem as they faced at Hatteras Island a few months earlier. Even if reinforcements rushed to the area or tried... The mainland lacked a nearby rail route, and there was no bridge. Troops would need some kind of waterborne transportation. So once the Navy got into the area, it would become very difficult to prevent the island from, well, just being surrounded and isolated. This prospect perhaps weighed on the minds of some of the troops stationed in the Confederate garrisons, because they had personally been en route to help defend Hatteras Island, but diverted to Roanoke. Hatteras simply fell to the Union long before they could arrive on the site. Now they might find themselves in the same predicament as the forlorn defenders of Hatteras Inlet. And so it was. After several weeks of slowly pushing past storm and sand, Burnside's expedition finally entered the sounds, in force. The expedition accumulated 15,000 troops in total, plus over 80 ships. Not all warships, of course, but even the army gunboats alone had sufficient firepower to make a very impressive display. They could likely outfight the Confederate Mosquito Fleet ship for ship. As it happened, the gunboats brought eight vessels to the fight and the Mosquito Fleet seven. But even the small task force from the Union Navy included significantly more firepower as well. If you think this might be setting up a massive and one-sided victory, you are correct. Yet the Confederates did have some advantages. The Union forces could not hope to receive timely reinforcements themselves, and had to rely entirely on their ships. If the defenders could unite all their forces, fall back with what room they had, and prevent the Union from completely surrounding the island, they may hold out long enough the Union would retreat to resupply. Or the Confederates might make the attempt so costly as to become a worthless Pyrrhic victory. Sure the Union could afford to send 15,000 men at Roanoke. Well, in the entire expedition. But even the mighty United States could not do so for every island. The trouble was that Roanoke was not just any island. As explained, it formed the geographic key towards controlling the sounds, and once the Union captured it, they would effectively control one of the key supply lines for the Confederacy as well as one of its most valuable ports. And yet the political leadership failed to put in place a single leader. They did not prioritize Roanoke or turned it into a fortress, but also did not effectively plan around the possibility of losing it. If there was a reason for this mistake, that lay in the lack of military manpower and materials. While before the war, secessionists confidently hand-waved this problem and asserted that their warriors would obliterate the northerners with ease. In the initial rush of excitement over the victory at bull run, that kind of optimism seemed justifiable. Yet that now lay seven months in the past. Enthusiasm had cooled and recruiting for the Confederate armies ran short. Recall that at this very moment in Virginia, General Joe Johnson faced General McClellan with odds worse than two to one against. In Tennessee and Kentucky, General Albert Sidney Johnston made similar odds at every point. These were the most significant fronts, and yet the Confederacy could not come up with anything like military parity, or even achieve a realistic two-soldiers-against-three ratio for the defense. This was not supposed to happen according to secessionist doctrine. In the worldview of the extreme pro-slavery, pro-secession movement, the slaveholding leadership would be able to fight against poor odds, yes, but win victory rapidly through high morale, social unity, and innate military virtue. Again, they took the Battle of Bull Run as proof their views were entirely correct. But they conveniently forgot that at Bull Run, the Confederacy had the advantage of defending with equal numbers against a very green Union force. And also, they came close to a crushing defeat, before the arrival of reinforcements from an unexpected flank sparked a Union rout. And since then, the Confederacy did have additional victories, but not especially great or glorious ones. They had lost a huge portion of Virginia. Instead of pressing vigorous attacks into northern territory, their armies had to stand on the defense. The northern hirelings were, according to doctrine, supposed to melt away, back their farms and stores and workshops in the face of southern resolve. And yet, every day, they expanded their already large, better-equipped armies with clear preparation to invade. Indeed, this went to the point that General Joe Johnson simply could not understand why his counterpart McClellan wasn't attacking. So much for ideology and strategy, anyhow. The Confederate soldiers on Roanoke probably had very little interest in it, as they had to fight in reality, and that reality was no fun at all. In the early morning hours of February 7th, 1862, the Navy and gunboats finally advanced on Roanoke Island, taking the fight into the Western Channel. The Mosquito Fleet, headed by Captain Lynch, moved to intercept. Would the plucky, if outgunned, rebels be able to defend the honor of their flag? Would they use their agility to outmaneuver the more powerful Union Navy? Would they... Hey, wait, where are they going? The Mosquito Fleet lost two ships in a matter of minutes and did very little against the Union Fleet. They realized this was going to become a complete slaughter. And also, they had so little ammunition that they literally couldn't fight anymore. The remaining ships turned tail and escaped as fast as possible. That, that, was, that was pretty much the entire naval battle portion of the landing. It, it was over that fast. Burnside took 9,000 or so men. By 3 p.m. he was landing at Ashby Harbor, around the middle of the island. In the meantime, the Navy and gunboats settled down to bombard one Confederate point, Fort Bartow, into submission. Although the fight stretched into the next day, the result was hardly in doubt. Fort Bartow could only mount a few guns which would actually fire upon the Navy fleet, and slowly but surely the ships reduced it. Burnside and his soldiers, although slowed down by Fort Bartow temporarily, assembled in line of battle the next morning. Here they began an advance along the only road north along the island. Here the Confederate soldiers, commanded by Colonel Henry Shaw, will come back to General Weiss's indisposition later, kept up a sturdy fire, and they managed to drive back two Union regiments. The Confederates anchored their left and their right into basically swampy ground, but also they just didn't have enough men to put up a larger line, so they were pretty much stuck. Brigadier Jesse Reno for the Union arrived on scene. He looked at the situation and then ordered one unit to move to the Union left through a swamp, while General Foster did the same to the right. In short order, the movements turned the Confederate position into a shooting gallery. The swamps only looked impassable and the soldiers, as infantry usually will, managed to slog through. So much like the Mosquito Fleet, the Confederate soldiers broke and ran, outgunned and outnumbered. Yet while they had constructed several bastions to defend the island, there was no stronghold or defensive line to reorganize the retreating men. Burnside simply kept up his march north. He came up and swept along that one single road, and, well, that was about all. A few hours later, it was indeed all over. 2,600 Confederate soldiers surrendered to Burnside. Federal forces altogether suffered only 260 casualties, including fewer than 40 killed in action. In the process, 30 cannon also fell into Union hands as well. If the description of the battle seems rather short, well, well, it was a very short and one-sided battle. As a coda to all this, a couple of days later, the Union Navy sailed up a river, located the Mosquito Fleet, and ruined what was left. That was about the whole campaign in the sense of actual fighting. And yet, that was not the whole story, for the consequences of the quick and decisive Roanoke Island campaign would continue throughout the war. First, the Union took another step forward on the issue of slavery— although a bit more subtly. Here, they declared all the slaves on Roanoke contraband of war. This at least nominally freed them of the yoke of slavery, although even then no one entirely understood what that would mean for the future. But almost overnight, Roanoke Island became yet another safe harbor against slavery. and Soon hundreds of slaves, or really former slaves, along the coast made their way to the island and freedom. The Confederate coastal traffic, well, all that stopped too, and within a month, Burnside went on to capture the city of New Bern as well, closing one of the few precious southern ports. That also put a federal force into the strategic rear of the main Confederate position in Virginia, and a position to threaten one of the major railroads as well. The railroad ran from Richmond down to Wilmington through Goldsboro. Now, Goldsboro lay only 60 miles or so from New Bern and a branched line ran directly between the two cities. This, at least, forced Richmond to pay some attention, and they would necessarily keep forces to prevent further Union incursions for the rest of the war. However, General McClellan's peninsular campaign in the coming months required support. Burnside would withdraw most of his troops from North Carolina. This led to a bizarre stalemate that lasted nearly to the end of the war, where Union and Confederate soldiers held a pointless standoff neither daring to undertake a forceful attack. Yet the strategic situation here warranted a serious effort. The Union could have cut a vital rail line, an irreplaceable resource, supporting the Virginia Front, whereas the Confederacy wanted to retake a keyport and push back a major coastal threat, at least for a time. Yet neither happened, largely for lack of strategic vision among the top Army commanders. When the Union rectified the fault on their side in the spring of 1864, the opportunity had largely passed, and a different strategy made New Bern less important. On the other side, Confederate President Jefferson Davis exhibited a curious blindness to the war outside of Virginia. Although not ignoring matters there, he systematically underestimated the importance of other fronts. In a sense, Davis viewed the Virginia Front as the real war and assigned military resources accordingly. Yet the fall of Roanoke, occurring at the same time as the fall of Forts Henry and Donelson, showed the limitations of Confederate strategy. This heralded the grim news, for the Confederacy at least, that the Union may have stumbled at first, yes, but now the North steadied and began to push back with the kind of force and authority necessary. Abraham Lincoln, for one, hoped this progress would lead to the swift collapse of Confederate power in its entirety. That did not happen. But continued Union victories proved that the slave power was teetering on the edge and potentially ready to fall. Another consequence of the campaign, however, lay in the rise of Burnside. He had been General McClellan's friend for years before the war, and that added on to his years of service in the Army and studies at West Point. Now, he had left and succeeded well enough as a civilian engineer. But when the war came, he joined up and fought as a colonel at Bull Run. That day, his unit became the first to enter contact with the enemy on that wide early morning flank march. Despite numerous difficulties, he managed to get his men out of marching order and into a line of battle. That was no great achievement, and if he exhibited no amazing courage or capability, he performed credibly and with calmness. Not every officer could say the same. And then Burnside found the opportunity to take charge of the North Carolina Expedition and he performed brilliantly. Of course, Burnside had vastly more resources than his opponents, but he acted in a manner that not only met the military needs, but also fulfilled essentially political objectives. For example, he recruited his own soldiers rather than draw from another army, and successfully cooperated with the Navy men as well. Basically, everybody not only liked Burnside for his easygoing personality, but he was succeeding masterfully. As a consequence, he would go on to more prominent commands, and unfortunately at a certain point his weaknesses will show. But General Ambrose Burnside was in reality a very competent officer, merely one who struggled with larger strategic problems and increasingly huge armies. In and of itself, there's nothing shameful about it, and Burnside would also show humility and honesty in his self-assessment. But the turning fortunes of war would eventually put him into positions of great and independent responsibility that he simply couldn't handle. Now, we also come to the question of General Henry A. Weiss. Basically, why wasn't he at the battle? Well, in fact, his command was very nearby. He also had another 800 men, and they happened to be stationed on Nags Head, which is basically the island that's just off offshore um, of Roanoke, part of the whole Outer Banks. He had his men there, and unfortunately, he basically came down with uh, sickness of some kind, to the point where he was, like, coughing blood. Very, very ill, and he could not possibly actually fight in that condition. So ultimately, he received some of the blame for the failure at Roanoke, probably unfairly. There was Even with 800 men, that was just not going to help enough in the end. But General Weiss's wartime career is not over by a long shot. In fact, he is going to continue with some commands throughout pretty much the balance of the war. As for Roanoke Island, it would go on to become a freedman's settlement during the war years, as well as a union base of operations, of course. In a way, that is the only real legacy of the war left on Roanoke, as time and tide have wiped away the traces of battles and forts. The land itself is a far different shape today than it did in 1862. Along the way, two bridges have connected the mainland and the outer banks, transforming the community completely. If you do want to visit, there are historical sites on the island and nearby, but focused more on the colonial period than the Civil War. If you are interested in other aspects of American history, however, try visiting nearby Kitty Hawk, the site of the Wright Brothers' famous first flight. This has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.